from ABC7 New York, this is Eyewitness News Extra Time. Good evening, everyone, and welcome once again to Eyewitness News Extra Time. I am Bill Ritter, and to quote Led Zeppelin, it was a communications breakdown, and thankfully no one was killed. Today, the National Transportation Safety Board releasing its preliminary report into that derailment of a number one subway train earlier this month in New York City. A northbound train collided with a disabled train and then partially derailed just north of the 96th Street Station on July, uh, January 4th. About 22 passengers and three crew members did suffer minor injuries. But again, no one was seriously hurt and thankfully no one was killed, but they could have been. So what, what happened? What really happened? I'm going to Josh Heidegger in Lower Manhattan today. The post-analysis of the MTSB preliminary sur survey. Josh. Yeah, Bill, we're here at a one-stop uh, near the Battery, which is just right near MTA headquarters, and it's where the head of New York City Transit, by the way, of course, the nation's biggest subway system, uh, addressed this preliminary report from the NTSB. This isn't the final report. This isn't recommendations and how to fix things that might be wrong. This is simply the factual summary. And on that, the MTA says there's actually no dispute. How we doing, guys? Everybody all right? It was the last thing strap hangers expected as they went about their day earlier this month. Their fully loaded one train collided with another train, injuring two dozen people and raising a million questions about the safety of the subway. We're going to look at everything, not only the individual actors, but are there you know, processes or procedures that we could improve to make sure this doesn't happen again. Today, Richard Davey, the head of New York City Transit, reacted to a preliminary report from the NTSB calling into question protocols around communication and policies for moving trains that are out of service. The trains collided and jumped the tracks just after the new year. The train on the left had been empty and out of service and was being moved to a yard. A supervisor at the controls way back in the sixth car with nowhere to see where it was going. I'm yelling now on the radio, stop the train. Stop the train, stop the train. And you can't get the train to stop. If he doesn't adhere to my commands, my rebel commands, uh, I'm helpless. Transit worker Andy Valentine told Eyewitness News reporter N.J. Burkett he was in the front, guiding the supervisor by radio. But as they approached a red light, he says the supervisor never acknowledged his increasingly frantic calls to stop, and they slammed into the one train, which had a 1,000 passengers aboard. And I almost lost my life that day. I put all my trust in the supervisor to do the right thing. And he almost took my life that day. Today, the NTSB said it's focusing on transit's operating procedures when moving out-of-service trains. It's radio communication procedures, mechanical procedures when taking a train out of service, and the lack of federal requirements for cameras or recorders on commuter trains. The MTA says it's ready for whatever the investigation may reveal. My expectation is the NTSB will, as they always do, have a professional report that will give us some recommendations and how to improve. Yeah, that report will likely take months, if not more than a year, to complete. And only then will the NTSB issue recommendations on how things could be safer in the future. Uh, at the moment, the uh, MTA says it's ready to implement pretty much anything they recommend. Bill? You know, it's interesting, though, Josh. The interview that NJ did with the, one, of the, uh, one of the people on the train who saw that happen, it said we, we didn't have communication with each other. You'd think they maybe would go ahead and say, okay, look, we think we know what happened, not just wait for the NTSB. 
I'm just a layperson, but that's the well, that's so, the top of my mind. Well, well, well. So in covering a lot of aviation disasters where the NTSB or accidents where the NTSB was involved, it works sort of the same way. The NTSB they, they first just lay out the facts, right? They don't make any statements of what went wrong or what should have done differently. They're just laying out the facts. And in this case, it is instructive that the facts line up perfectly with what this the flagger, the guy at the front of the train, yeah. told NJ in that exclusive interview a few weeks ago. Uh, now they're going to go back and do actually the hard work of figuring out what processes or, or systems uh, could be different. You know, you know, here's an interesting point. This whole business of moving the train, you know, so the first five cars were disabled. The controls only worked in car six. So there was a supervisor in car six <laughs> driving the train from the middle of the train where he can't see where he's going. And that's why the guy NJ talked to was up front and they were communicating on a, on a radio. A, a reasonable person would look at that and say, well, there's a lot of things that could go wrong. This seems like it's not really a foolproof method. Turns out the MTA does that particular procedure, they said today, as many as 10 times per week when they're doing maintenance on a train. And so, you know, that's something that perhaps the NTSB is gonna look at and say, maybe there's a, perhaps a more sophisticated, foolproof way to do that. Right, well, and that's a very good point. The stakes here, of course, and that's the reason why you're there and we're interviewing right. you, the stakes are so high, and you, you put it in lay terms, and we really appreciate that. Uh, Josh, once again, reporting from Lower Manhattan tonight. Thanks for your insight, Josh. You bet. See right, you. Take care. Uh, time now to get the uh, the other experts' advice. You know, just Lee Goldberg, and you've taken you've taken a hard hit, and it's not your fault. You're just doing <laughs> the weather. But people are tired of this a little bit, aren't they? Listen, I, I'm fine to be the weather punching bag. I mean, <laughs> I, I get the frustration, and it's a frustrating forecast to deliver day after day. At least we got mild today, so folks were comfortable to be outside, but you're missing that sunshine, and I know that can get irritating. Well, we are dry by midday tomorrow, but we have to go through another round of rain and dreary conditions during the overnight. And some places will actually get a pretty good soaking leading into the morning commute, and the fog's going to get thicker again. There's a dense fog advisory in the Poconos and Catskills, but I would anticipate this being extended as we go through the evening hours because we're already seeing very low visibilities on the Jersey Shore, and that's only going to expand northward because now cooler air is pushing back in from the north. You can see the low clouds and deck of fog here down to the south, so that's rolling in tonight. We're at 56 right now. It's actually a pretty pleasant evening to be out and about. There's no wind. Rain and fog come back, though, with a vengeance by later in the evening hours. That'll last through Friday morning. We can get up to a half inch of rain. Any sun over the next few days? Not really tomorrow, maybe westernmost New Jersey, southern New Jersey by late in the day. It's going to take all day to happen. Intervals on Saturday. I do think we can break out at times before the clouds roll in by later Saturday and Saturday night. That's with the next storm coming in, which should be a cold rain city and coast. But we're going to start out as a rain or mix or even snow north and west and then go over to snow from northwest to southeast later Sunday, Sunday night and into early Monday. So I wanted to give you an early look. Normally we wouldn't post it until Friday, but Thursday headed into weekend. I want to give you a feel for what we're looking at. And I think what we're confident on is some decent accumulation of the Poconos and Catskills. This is an area right here, our northwest suburbs into the Hudson Valley, north and west of I-287, anywhere from a coating to three inches. A lot of it on colder surfaces, but we can have slippery spots as we go into a Sunday afternoon into Monday morning. And in the city, you know, we could see some snow end this later Sunday night and into Monday morning, but I don't think it accumulates. Just too mild going into the storm. Speaking of mild, 53 Roslyn and Merrick right now. We're very comfortable. It's our warmest weather of the week. 40s off to the north. And by tomorrow, it'll be an amazing range of 40s here in New York City to 70s in DC. 
30s in Boston. I guess it could be worse. So this front is leaning down on the area and bringing back cooler air. Right now it's just some drizzle, but there's some steady rain down to the south, and that'll start lifting in during the evening hours. I think we could put down a third of an inch to maybe a half inch. Some places could even get a little more as we go into the overnight. So here's the future cast. Your first early evening would just be drizzle. Toward midnight, some steady rain comes in. Could get briefly heavy during the overnight. Unfortunately, that's leading into the morning commute. Rain probably getting lighter during the commute itself. But again, low visibilities and big puddles. It's going to be a slow go. By midday, we're dry. Maybe some late day breaks well to the south and west. By Saturday, we'll be in the 40s for the most part. That's an encouraging look. Couple of breaks in the overcast at times, only to see those clouds thicken right back up. 41 degrees tonight. Rain drizzle and fog gets steadier and thicker as we go through the midnight hour. Tomorrow morning's really damp and foggy, then just mostly cloudy the rest of the day. 50s, you'll have to go to southern New Jersey for that. 41 tomorrow night, a dry night. It's actually a decent night for January, mild side, about 41 degrees. That's higher than our normal daytime high. Saturday is the day to be outside and get things done. Even with limited sun, we got rain going to a mix and even snow on Sunday north and west. Could end as snow even down to the coast on Monday morning. Blustery and wintry for a couple of days and then back to normal by next Wednesday. More updates in your Accu with the forecast throughout the evening on ABC 7 NY. And Bill, we'll see you at 11 o'clock. Yes, you will on Channel 7 and 50s in South Jersey. I'm heading there. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Thank you, Lee. Yep. Uh, and as we continue with Iowa News Extra Time, a young professional dancer dies after an allergic reaction linked to peanuts. We'll show, her how, show you how her loved ones are now celebrating her life. Plus, we take a deep dive in the potentially deadly consequences of food allergies. We're learning more tonight about that woman on the screen right now, the professional dancer who died from an allergic reaction to peanuts in a cookie she ate. The peanuts were not listed on the cookie that was bought from a Stu Leonard's in Connecticut. Her name is Orla Baxendal, and she was only 25 years old and a well-known dancer in New York City. Her reaction to the peanuts was so severe, even an EpiPen injection could not save her life. With the latest, here's Eyewitness News reporter Reagan Meggie. She was vibrant, dynamic. 25-year-old Orla Baxendale's spirit and zest for dance was contagious. Just ask her instructor at the Ailey School of Dance. Someone who uh, didn't particularly take themselves seriously, but they took the work seriously. And Baxendale was successful. She went to be part of Momix, a dance company based in Connecticut. A promising career in dance unfolding before her. But a severe allergic reaction to peanuts tragically cut her life short two weeks ago, leaving her loved ones devastated. Baxendale's family um, and, and attorney, Mary Jo Adamy, says that obvious. day, Baxendale and her two friends were in a rental home in Connecticut while touring for a show. These Florentine cookies, manufactured by Cookies United on Long Island, repackaged by Stu Leonard's, were sitting on the counter. But the label? Missing a warning that the cookies contained peanuts. Because Orla was so vigilant and so careful with everything she touched, she actually Googled soy nut, which is on the package, thinking, wanting to make sure that a soy nut wasn't a nut. Assuming the cookies were safe, Baxendale took a few bites, had an allergic reaction. Her friends rushing her to the hospital used her EpiPen, but it was too late. One simple sticker posted on a plastic box, a plastic package, you know, their daughter would be alive. We have every reason to believe not that Stu Leonard's may not have done their job, but they didn't do their job. They just ignored it and 
or something slipped through the cracks, but they were on notice and did nothing. The Connecticut Department of Consumer Protection has now expanded the recall, not only to the vanilla cookies, but also now to the chocolate cookies. They both contain peanuts and eggs, ingredients that are not listed on the package label. In Midtown, Reagan Medjie, Channel 7 Eyewitness News. It is all so very sad, as you can see. This tragedy has us, though, asking so many questions, like how do you help someone who is having a reaction? How do you spot it? Because this can be, as we've seen, a matter of life and in this case, death. Joining us now with more to discuss all this, Dr. David Rosenthal, who heads up the Pediatric Allergy Services at Northwell Health. And Dr. Rosenthal, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. I, I'd like to get just your reaction to, to the story as it has unfolded, your emotional reaction. I know that you're a scientist and a doctor, but you're a, a person. And so what's your reaction to this? No, it's so tragic. I think the loss of life is is always tragic, and specifically when we're losing someone who's young, um, it's it's really it's really even worse. I think what makes it even more challenging for all of us is, is that, you know, like we had said, the 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 simple labeling of these products can really make a difference in someone's life or death experience here. Right. There's so many things that went wrong here. Right. I mean, where do you begin? You can begin. It's not your forte, I know, but you know, how did it, how did it not get on the on the label? Obviously, she knew she was allergic to, to peanuts. And how did that warning didn't get on the label? Right. No, it's, it's something that's really important. And labeling foods is obviously something that the FDA mandates. And so it's, it's clear you saw the label, um, I think, on the, the, the image that said that soy, wheat, and milk were in the, in the ingredients. And there's nine food allergies which are required to make sure that they're, they're marked on food allergies. That's going to be milk, eggs, fish, shellfish tree nuts, peanuts, wheat, soybeans, and sesame. Right. And so each one of those should be clearly marked on the packaging by FDA regulation. You know, w when I grew up, people didn't have peanut allergies. Just, I just never heard of it. No one ever did. And all of a sudden we have them. Lots of reasons for this. But I'd like to get your opinion about how that happened from one generation to two more generations. And, and number one, and number two, how can we prevent this? That's really the bigger question here. So a couple of things. One is, is that we don't know exactly why there's an increased incidence of peanut allergy now, but we think that there's about 6.1 million Americans that have symptoms of peanut allergy. That's about 1% to 2% of people in the United States that have peanut allergy. It could be because we're avoiding these foods earlier in childhood. And so recommendations came out from the American Academy of Pediatrics, as well as the American Academy of Asthma, Allergy, and Immunology um, a few years ago, which really recommended early peanut introduction into the diet for children so that we can get used to these foods earlier in life. And then it's really important that we're also talking about how we can prevent these reactions from occurring once, we're, we're, once they do occur. Right. So tell, tell us if we're just a layperson and we're with someone who has a peanut allergy, how do we prepare to help them? One, two, three, and four. You need to make sure the first thing, the second thing, and the third thing you do is give an epinephrine auto-injector. Give that, that auto-injector to the person as soon as possible if they're having reactions that are involving their airway, skin, stomach, heart, throat, or mouth that are severe in nature because that EpiPen is what's going to save their life. It must be given as soon as possible. And if you give it, call 911. And we saw, as you saw in the story, they gave it to her. Someone gave that to her. And she gave it to herself, too. And it was too late. So what kind of timetable are we talking about? 
I think the sooner you're able to give an epinephrine auto-injector to someone, the bigger difference it's going to be going to be able to make. So it's critical. Time is, is essential. And so if you have a severe food allergy, always keep your epinephrine auto-injector on you and make sure you take it immediately as soon as you recognize the first symptoms. And then be sure to call 911 and then go to the hospital because you can have a biphasic reaction or sometimes need a second dose of epinephrine um, rather than just a single dose. And there's just no, time is of the essence. No question about it. All right. Dr. David Rosenthal from Northwell Health. Thank you, doctor, for joining us and giving us Thank you so much. Appreciate it. All right. Good luck to you. Uh, I think you helped a lot of people. As we continue with Eyewitness News Extra Time, the dangers of social media for children and what parents can do to make sure their kids stay safe while using social platforms. That's next. New York Mayor Adams delivered his annual State of the City address yesterday, and boy, did it make news, because one of his new programs, the first in the country by a city, declaring social media use a health hazard for young people. This is a big deal, because at least the concept is. The hard part of this, of course, coming up with a way to get kids who are addicted to their phone apps addicted no more. New York City Health Commissioner Dr. Ashwan Vasan says he's going to come up with a plan for parents to get involved and stop this unhealthy addiction. Now, the thing is, as most parents know, I know that. I have a 14-year-old. These devices are a part of our children's culture. They grew up with them. So how do you protect them from something that is so ingrained in their everyday lives? That's really a big question. Joining us now with more on this and some giving us insight, Dr. Shannon Bennett, a clinical director for the Center for Youth Mental Health at New York Presbyterian Hospital. And Dr. Bennett, thank you for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Let me get your first reaction to what you heard yesterday uh, by the health commissioner. I think it's, it's really important news. It's so important that we all understand the risks as well as the benefits of social media and that we are able to communicate in a way that allows us to work together, our civic leaders, parents, educators, doctors, so that we can keep our kids safe and well. Right. And let's just talk briefly. I tell you my own experience. Uh, my daughter, you know, wanted to go and take a bus to school. And I think that was great. And we gave her some independence. But I don't want her not in communication with us if she's out in public when she started at the age 12 to do that or at 11. And I think that that's really a lot of parents felt the same way. So you get a phone and all of a sudden it's not just a phone. Maybe it should have been a flip, flip, flip phone looking back, but she's got a real phone. And where do you end that? How do you stop that? And then you have pandemic, which they were hooked on these and this became some of their lifeblood. So this happened to this generation of young people. Can we get it back? Before we get in the, in the weeds about this, can we get that back? Can they stop that addiction? You, you speak to so many of the important benefits of connection and social media, and particularly for youth in our teen years when feeling connected with peers is such an important aspect of, of development. No it is key that parents get involved and help to create balance. So parents should be monitoring both the amount of time as well as, as the sites and the content that kids are viewing on their phones. Kids can talk to their parents starting at a really young age about safe and appropriate use of social media, about digital citizenship, where we don't say or share things online that we wouldn't say or share in a public forum, about privacy, about bullying. So we're communicating early and often and coming up with a family plan around media that includes both 
time away from our screens and zones, whether that's the dinner table or the bedroom, where we're all taking a break from our social media and our, our phones. Right. It, it, the, the, uh, the dangers of social media, I think that we do, I think we personally, I'm just personally, we, t we do a pretty good job of telling our kids about that, especially our, our youngest at 14 years old. And, and you know, listen, I, I send her a note and say, you know, I'm sorry your dad sees the terrible things every day on the news that happen mm -hmm. in this society. And so I'm gonna be conservative about this. But she also gets a lot out of it. And, and I think that's really the, the balance most parents are trying to, trying to make about this. How do you figure out whether the kid's on too much? How addicted are they? It's a great question. And, and the key word, you said it, is balance. So it's important to think about how else are our kids spending their time? Are they engaged? Are they enjoying other in-person activities related to school and socialization, extracurricular activities, family time? We need to have a balance between mm -hmm. in-person, a variety of different activities, as well as the time they're spending connected on their phones. If their time on social media is interfering with these other really important in-person connections and experiences, that's a warning sign. Certainly if it's interfering with sleep and if it seems to be impacting their mood or causing them more anxiety after they've been or during their time on their phone, that's also an important warning sign that we need to pay attention to. Well, that's a really good warning sign about it, what it affects them. What are the other ways that we might look and say, hey, that is something we should really look at because this whole excessive amount of social media is what worries us as you get the final word on this. Whenever we see our kids isolating, yeah. whether they're spending too much time alone in their rooms, even if they're on their phones, things that are taking them away from other important human connections can be an important warning sign for anxiety and depression. And that's when we need to get in there and find other ways to, to, to connect as parents and to help them connect to other important people in their lives. And if we can do that before they get into a trouble zone, that's really the key. Dr. Shannon Bennett, really interesting insight. We thank you uh, for the Center for Youth Mental Health at New York Presbyterian. Really appreciate you joining us tonight. Thank you so much for having me. All right, thank you, doctor. Interesting information. I'm gonna take it home. Uh, as we continue with Iowa News Extra Time tonight, anxious moments when a church in Connecticut, look at that, a historic church, suddenly collapsed today. Investigators right now trying to determine what caused the collapse of a historic church in Connecticut, the steeple at Engaging Heaven Church in New London. Six, 400 years old, crashed into the rest of the building this afternoon. It appears one woman was inside at the time. Thankfully, she got out okay. And we just received surveillance video, new video, showing the moment the church actually went down. Look at that. One eyewitness tells us he had just parked his car when this entire thing happened. I heard this boom sound, and I looked to my left, and there was the church all in one piece, but then it just collapsed right down the middle. And it was, I mean, when I say horrific, it was, whoo. Church officials say the building is now destroyed, but they are grateful no one was hurt, obviously. Keep this rolling if we could, Andy, because I, I want to say how, where it is in, in New London, what you may think is really close to places that we may know. An Amtrak station, two blocks away. And the Cross Island Ferry, Cross Island Ferry, two blocks away. Historic church in an historic New London. Wow. And that wraps up this edition of Eyewitness News Extra Time. We thank you for joining us. I'm Bill Ritter. We're back live on Eyewitness News at 11 on Channel 7. Hope to see you then. Until then, have a safe and great evening.